Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us verbally through your son Jesus who lived and walked among this earth 2,000 years ago. And here now today through his words that he spoke 2,000 years ago and for Matthew the tax collector who listened and wrote it down. And for those throughout the centuries who have preserved this word for us this morning, Lord, I pray that it would be living and active to us. I pray that this wouldn't just be a simple tradition as we gather on Sunday morning, but I pray that this would be an encounter with you, the living God. So make your word come alive to us this morning, Lord Jesus. We ask you to do that for your glory, for the good of all those gathered together here today and for the advancement of your gospel as we go out and interact with others. We pray these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, the title of today's sermon is When Jesus Disappoints. And I actually played with that title all week and thought whether or not I should title a sermon When Jesus Disappoints because theologically, in, in the biblical right answer is that no, Jesus doesn't disappoint, right? Like I had this inner monologue going in my head that, no, you, you can't say that because Jesus doesn't disappoint, and you can't lead people into believing that Jesus does disappoint. But the reality is, we've all felt disappointed by Jesus, or by God, or by following Jesus, have we not? I mean, it doesn't take very long. If, if, you, are a, if you are somebody who's investigating Christianity, and you're not sure about Christianity, or if you've recently become a Christian, or if you've, become a, or if you've been a Christian for years, you will know, and if you're somebody who's curious, you will discover that it doesn't take very long for you to surrender your life to Jesus and then pretty quickly become disappointed with, with how he leads and what he allows. I think if we're honest with ourselves, circumstantially, we can admit and say that oftentimes it feels as though Jesus disappoints. The car breaks down yet again and you don't have the extra income to fix it. God hasn't provided a spouse. In spite of your years of prayer and searching and having faith, or the spouse that he provided hasn't turned out to be the person that you thought you married. The kids haven't adopted your values and your faith. They've wandered. Or maybe the kid was born with a disability. You've prayed and prayed and prayed and your battle with anxiety or sexual purity remains. God, why won't you take this away? The diagnosis from the doctor is in. And it's what you feared. You flipped on the news to hear a constant report of natural disaster, human corruption, racial injustice, gender equality. These things just won't go away. Gender inequality, these things just won't go away. Addiction to pills and pornography seem unbeatable. All of this remains while we pray and we plead that God would take it away. And so, yes, the state of the world that we live in can often leave us feeling disappointed with Jesus. In fact, our text today engages this disappointment in a very real and practical way as it looks at two, two kind of types of people. It looks at John the Baptist. We're going to engage with John the Baptist in this text this morning and see how John the Baptist himself dealt with disappointment in Jesus. And then the crowds, these, these crowds of people in these cities, the crowds were following Jesus and Jesus was showing up in cities and doing miracles and we see these massive groups of people becoming disappointed in Jesus. 
See, the reality is that Jesus doesn't actually disappoint us. I mean, we feel disappointed. There's circumstances, there's events in our life that cause us to feel disappointed with God or in a life of following Jesus. But the theological truth, the biblical reality is that Jesus doesn't disappoint, though we feel that way. And so here's the big idea that we're going to see this morning. When Jesus disappoints, we must repent and run to him with childlike faith. If we feel as though, if you believe as though God has disappointed you or a life of following Jesus isn't everything that you had hoped for or expected that it would be, this is a sign. If you feel any disappointment towards God and his son, Jesus Christ, this is a sign. It's an opportunity. It's a call. It's an invitation for us to repent, to turn from ourselves and to run to him with childlike faith. And we're going to see this play out in John the Baptist and the crowds today. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 11 on page 816. We're going to start with John the Baptist. That's where this chapter starts with. John the Baptist, he had ample reason to believe in Jesus. Matthew chapter 11 picks up after Jesus has done the Sermon on the Mount. He's done incredible miracles. And now Matthew chapter 11 kind of takes a turn and begins to show us people questioning Jesus and being disappointed in Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, so John the Baptist, if you remember him, he was in the beginning parts of the book of Matthew. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He was a prophet who would prepare the way for Jesus. He had the spirit of Elijah upon him, which is what Jesus tells us down here in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 11. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that a prophet similar to Elijah would come before the Messiah, before the Christ, and prepare the way. And so John the Baptist is this man. We read about him in Matthew chapter 3 that he was preparing the way of the Lord. He was preparing people's hearts for the coming Messiah, for the rule of the king. And here we learn in Matthew chapter 2 that John is in prison. We're going to talk about that in just a a minute. But before we talk about John being in prison and circumstances that caused him to question Jesus and be disappointed in Jesus, I want to look at why John should have believed in Jesus. John had ample reason to believe in Jesus. This is a guy who went before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist, he had, he had seen and touched and talked with Jesus in person. I mean, sometimes when we doubt, when we have questions, when we have disappointments, how many times have you been tempted to believe? If only you could hear God's audible voice. If only you could touch Jesus, if only he would appear to you and make it clear. And sometimes our, our, our disappointment and our doubt and our lack of faith intermingle because God seems distant. He seems disconnected. We, we can't tangibly touch him. Well, John the Baptist did. John the Baptist had ample reason to believe in Jesus. He actually got to touch Jesus. He actually heard Jesus' voice. He actually interacted with Jesus. He had a personal physical, real relationship with Jesus. He had every reason to believe in Jesus. Not only that, but he had proclaimed Jesus as God. If you look back in Matthew chapter 3, and we don't need to turn there this morning because we've already studied that a few months ago, but John's message was come, he, it was to proclaim that the Messiah, that Jesus the Christ was here, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ, the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And this is something that John believed. He went out proclaiming the message that the Messiah has arrived, the Christ is here. 
Of course, he had reason to believe, and in fact, he did believe. He believed as he was preparing the way that this man was God, that this man came to bring heaven to earth, that this man came to wash away the people's sins. And also, he had reason to believe because he had baptized Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I, I love this, this encounter with God that John the Baptist had. He baptized Jesus, and while he baptized Jesus, he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon Jesus. And he heard the audible voice of God from heaven confirm Jesus' identity and his ministry. If you go back in Matthew chapter 3, let's actually look at that one because it's so cool and so powerful. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he tells John the Baptist to baptize him. And, and John pushes back on this. He says, he says I don't, I don't want to baptize you. You are God. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And so John was believing in the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah, enough that he didn't even want to baptize him. And then he, he goes and does it to be obedient to Jesus' request. In verse 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So John had heard the audible voice of God from heaven confirm Jesus' messianic identity. He had every reason to believe in who Jesus was, but the fact remains that John had doubts and disappointments in Jesus. That's what Matthew chapter 11 introduces us to. Look at verse 3. Verse 2 and 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, so John is now sitting in prison. He's thrown into prison because of Herod. Herod threw John in prison because John confronted Herod for his sexual immorality, for his sins of greed and lust and murder and injustice. And so John's sitting in prison and he's hearing these reports from prison about all these things that Jesus is doing. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John in spite of all of what I just explained to you, all of these incredible things that John experienced and saw, all of these reasons that he had to believe in Jesus, is sitting in prison dealing with doubts and disappointments. Asking Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? I proclaimed you as the Messiah. I, I followed you with my life. I'm in prison now because I believed that you were the Messiah and I was proclaiming that and I was confronting the evil rulers of the world on your behalf. But, but now I have to wonder, are you actually the Messiah? Why is John filled with doubts and disappointments in Jesus after all of the incredible encounters and experiences that he had, after proclaiming who Jesus was? I think there's a couple of reasons. For one, he's in prison. He's in prison. I mean, don't we tend to doubt God and become disappointed in what he allows in our lives when circumstances aren't going our way? John was no different. He, he's, he's wondering if Jesus actually is the Messiah. That's his question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Because his experience of following Jesus doesn't match his expectations of following Jesus. Frustration comes from unmet expectation. 
John is sitting in prison frustrated because God has allowed him to be thrown into prison for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And so John here is wrestling with this reality of whether or not God actually is good, God is sovereign, whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied, because he's in prison. His life circumstances don't match the expectations that he had for the kingdom of God. It also seemed that Jesus was contradicting John's message by allowing evil to prevail. See, in Matthew chapter 3, when, when John was on the scene preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, proclaiming the coming day of the Lord Jesus, look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His message was, this is what John was speaking to the crowds, his winnowing fork is in hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John's message is that this Messiah is going to come, and, and when he finds faith, when he finds people who trust in God and believe in the Messiah, and people who work against the kingdom of God, he will clear them away. He will take away evil. He will remove evil. Righteousness, godliness will finally reign victoriously. And John's here in prison wrestling with what he taught to the crowds and what he's now experiencing in prison. From John's perspective, it seems as though evil is prevailing. He's in prison. Herod is running free. Herod, this evil, wicked ruler, sexually immoral, filled with pride and greed and lust, a murderer, a man who's building his own kingdom, a man who's paranoid about others, a man who wants everybody to worship him, a man who wants to sit in the place of God. And here, John the Baptist is sitting in jail. He's, he's shut up, he's locked down, he's put cast aside. And from John's perspective, it seems as though Jesus, what Jesus was allowing was contradicting what John had proclaimed. Have you ever been there where it seems like you're proclaiming one thing about God, but the circumstances of life don't match it? Like, you, you, you want to tell other people about the kingdom of God or the goodness of Christ, but, but it seems like there's no proof? It seems contradictory? Like, the, the, the reality of the world collides with the kingdom message? And, and who's ever going to believe me? Because I say that Jesus came to bring good news and to set captives free and to get people out of bondage and slavery and debt and, and poverty. He came to bring justice to this unjust world. And you look around and, and they seem like those messages are in conflict. And here's John having doubts and disappointments in Jesus because he's sitting in prison and evil seems to be winning. Thirdly, it seemed that Jesus was contradicting his own message that the kingdom was at hand. And so look back at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We spent quite a bit of time on this when we came through the first part of Matthew, but we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that when Jesus begins his public ministry after John, he says, For, the time, for that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, so Jesus came proclaiming this message, the kingdom of heaven, heaven, everything that is good, everything that is right, everything that is lovely is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. And John's sitting in prison, he had heard this message and he's thinking, this doesn't add up. 
This doesn't make sense. And so, church, can you identify with John? When you've believed in Jesus, when you've proclaimed Jesus, when you've given your life to Jesus, and yet the realities of your life collide with the goodness of the message, with what your expectations of the message were. That's John. And we're going to look at Jesus' response to John in a little bit here. But what I want to do first is look at the second group here. The second group in this passage is the unrepentant. So we have John the Baptist as one case study in Matthew chapter 11. And then the second one is we have the unrepentant, the crowds and cities. They also had ample reason to believe in Jesus. And so we see here in verse 20, actually look at verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? So Jesus here is comparing a whole generation of people, a whole crowd of people, all of these crowds who are following Jesus. We've talked before about how in the book of Matthew there's crowds and then a committed core, there's the disciples. Matthew, throughout the entire book, continues to show us kind of this, this divergent path between the crowds and the core, the disciples. And so Jesus, as he does his ministry, there's always this intermingled group of people who want things from Jesus and then those who are willing to follow Jesus to death. And so verse 16, he says, what shall I compare this generation to? And then verse 20 says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So this is the unrepentant. Two case studies here in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist and the unrepentant, these cities, these crowds, the people who had seen amazing things but remained unrepentant. Or as Jesus says in verse 16, this, this generation, this group of people, they also, like John, had ample reason to believe because they had seen, they had touched, and they had talked with Jesus. Again, how often do we think, if only we could see Jesus, if only we could touch Jesus, if only we could talk with Jesus, we would never doubt again. We would have complete faith. God, would you just show up and blow me away? Do something miraculous. Show yourself. Speak to me in an honorable voice. Heal my disease. Take this thing away. And we see Jesus doing that often throughout the book of Matthew. But what we see here in Matthew is that these people had experienced miraculous power from heaven through Jesus' touch, and yet they remained unrepentant. They had ample reason to believe. They had evidence for Jesus' divinity. They had evidence for who he claimed to be. But they remained unrepentant, and they remained disappointed. The second reason is that they, that they should have believed. They witnessed and testified to Jesus' authoritative teaching. We saw this at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Let's flip there again. This is all connected, all interrelated. So Matthew chapter 7, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when Jesus finished saying these things, when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, hours later, so I'll preach for about 45 minutes. Jesus preached for hours. You can handle 45 minutes. Jesus was a much better preacher than me, but we're looking at his words, so you can get 45 minutes in. And when Jesus finished saying these things, an all-day sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. So, so they had witnessed and testified to this authoritative teaching. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 tells us that the crowds noticed that when Jesus taught that there was this authoritative edge to it. There was something unusual about Jesus' teaching to testify to the fact that he was the Son of God. 
that, was, that he was in fact a, a different from their scribes, different from their rabbis, different from their normal teachers. This guy is set apart. There's something different and unique about Jesus. They had ample reason to believe that he was the promised Messiah. Thirdly, they had personally benefited from Jesus' many miracles. And this is what Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 10 were all about. I mean, Jesus is walking through their cities. He's sent out the disciples with the same power, the same authority to do miracles. And these people had benefited from those miracles. Look at Matthew 11. This is the response that Jesus gives to John. So John is sitting in prison doubting, should, should we, are, are you Jesus actually the Messiah or should we look for another? I'm sitting in prison and so it's hard for me to believe that you are everything that you said you are. Are, are you him or should we look for another? And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 4, and go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so this is what these crowds in these cities had experienced. Miracles. Amazing miracles where people who used to be blind are now able to see, the lame are able to walk, leopards are cleansed, lepers, not leopards. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, dead are raised. And the poor have now been included in the community and the good news of the gospel is proclaimed to them. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that, that the Messiah would come and do all of these things. And so they had ample reason to believe in Jesus. To believe and not be disappointed, but to be hopeful, to be eager with anticipation that their Messiah was among them. They had personally been healed from disease, and yet many of them doubted, and they lived with disappointment. Why? Why did this group remain disappointed and unrepentant in spite of their miraculous interactions with the Messiah? Well, there's a couple reasons. They expected Jesus to sing their songs and to play their games. We see this in verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation, these crowds, all these people? Is it like, it is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dridge and you did not mourn. See, Jesus didn't perfectly match their expectations. He, he didn't play their games. He didn't conform to their image. He was calling them to be conformed to his image. He was calling them to repent, to turn from their expectations, to turn from their kingdoms and place their faith in him and to align with his kingdom, which he has been teaching means, let's, let's look back at it quickly here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is the evidence, this is the fruit of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't their game. Who wants to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
well, if the Messiah is here, why are we going to be persecuted? Isn't he supposed to get rid of evil and, and exalt himself and exalt righteousness and justice on the earth and give us, his followers, favor? And so they're dealing with all this disappointment because Jesus wasn't fitting into their mold. They had all these ideas and expectations of who their Savior, who their Messiah would be, and the type of kingdom that he would grant them. And, and Jesus was not playing their song, playing their game, singing their song. He, Jesus, we march to the tune of Jesus' song, not vice versa. And so the crowds remained disappointed and unrepentant in Jesus because they couldn't, they couldn't fit God into their box. God wasn't actually their genie where they get three requests to get whatever they wanted. God was the king. Jesus had come as the king to establish his kingdom and to call people to give up their lives, to abandon their lives, to come and follow him. And that's not what they expected. They, they wanted Jesus to meet their needs, personally, kingdom-wise, and, and he did. He met many of their needs. He's healing them, right? But he didn't give them everything they, that they wanted or that they asked for. When he would go into a city and heal everyone, they, they would want him to stay and to set up a healing ministry in that city and become prominent. They, they wanted prominence and prestige. And Jesus would say, I can't stay here. I need to go to another town and proclaim the gospel. I've given you a taste of the kingdom. Now learn to live into it. I'm not going to stay here and set up something that makes you feel good about yourself. I'm going to go on and call others into the kingdom. And so they're disappointed because they wanted Jesus to perform for them. Said, no, I've come to heal you, but I'm not going to perform for you. I'm going to fulfill the mission that my Father has given me. And then thirdly, they remain unrepentant because they wanted Jesus to execute their will rather than God's. And they expected him to establish the kingdom according to their plan rather than God's. Again, frustration comes from unmet expectations. These crowds, these unrepentant people had certain expectations of what Jesus would do or should do for them. Jesus has already taught us in Matthew chapter 6. Look at it with me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus, later on in the book of Matthew, towards the end, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross in our place on our behalf, and he's feeling the weight of bearing our sin and shame upon his shoulders. And he says, Father, if you will, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, in my church as it is in heaven, in my neighborhood as it is in heaven, in my community as it is in heaven, in my state, in my country, in my world. And Jesus is teaching us to pray his will be done, not our will be done, but the crowds remain disappointed and unrepentant because Jesus wasn't meeting their expectations. They actually wanted an earthly kingdom. They didn't want to be oppressed by the Romans. They didn't want to feel threats from the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whatever next world power was about to raise up. They didn't want Nero to, to burn their city down, to, to cast them out of worshiping their king, Jesus. 
And so, Jesus, would you set up your kingdom here and now? We expect that. And Jesus didn't play their games. He didn't sing their songs. He had a different agenda, an upside-down kingdom, not a top-down kingdom. It's a grassroots kingdom where he's inviting people to walk with him in humility and to seek the good of others, not to set up shop and to dominate and rule from the top down. And they're disappointed, and they remain unrepentant because he didn't fit into their box. He didn't meet their expectations. See, this text reveals two types of people for us. The unrepentant who refuse to accept Jesus for who he is and submit to his will. We just finished talking about them. There's verse 16, but who shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates? This is what we want from you. This is, we, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang a dridge and you did not mourn. And what he's saying here, if you continue on in there, verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, John the Baptist, not eating or drinking. He was a man of fasting and sackcloth and ashes as he called people to repent. And the crowd said he has a demon in him because he made them feel convicted for their own lifestyles. Verse 19, then the Son of Man came, Jesus came, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. See, they, they had their vision and their idea of what Jesus should look like and what Jesus should do and how following him should work its way out in their lives. And because Jesus didn't fit the mold, because Jesus didn't conform to their expectations but expected them to conform to him, they remain disappointed and unrepentant. They, they, they refuse to accept Jesus for who he is. And then there's the doubting and disappointed Christian who is struggling to accept Jesus for who he is and submit to his will. This is John the Baptist. And I think this is many of us. You believe. I mean, John, John believed. He had proclaimed this stuff. He had, he had experienced the goodness of God through the person of Jesus. And so his question here in verse 3, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another his perspective has been skewed. His faith has been weakened by his circumstances. He's starting to wonder, is this Jesus really the promised Messiah? And how many of us, when circumstances of our life don't match our expectations or our hopes or our dreams, do we struggle? We struggle with doubt and disappointment. Can some of you identify with that this morning? I think if we're honest, all of us can identify with that. That we go through periods of life where circumstances of life don't match what it seems like they should if we want to honor God and live a life for Him and we've given everything up to follow Him and yet these scars remain, these struggles remain and we, at that point, we conflict. Our heads and our hearts, they, they collide with what we know to be true and what we feel is true. And so this text is so helpful for us because it shows us these two types of people who are here this morning. Some of you may be in the unrepentant group who to this point you've been refusing to accept Jesus for who he is and submit to his will. There, there's a warning for you in this passage. Verse 20, Then he began to denounce the cities 
where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So if you are an unrepentant person who hasn't submitted and surrendered your life to Jesus, listen to the woe. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, be exalt- will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. Hades is the place of death. It's the place that souls waited for the final judgment. It, it's an imagery of death to those who heard it. He says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Old Testament cities that were ruined for their rebellion against God. If, if Jesus had come and done miraculous miracles in Sodom, that city would have remained because they would have repented. They would have believed. If they would have seen and experienced what you saw and experienced, they would have turned from their wicked ways. It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so if you're in the unrepentant category, there is a very direct warning given to you in love from Jesus. Repent and believe. For judgment is awaiting those who in their own stubbornness resist God's ways and in their own arrogance insist on their own ways. That's the unrepentant. In stubbornness, they resist God's ways, and in arrogance, they insist on their own ways. And here is a loving word of warning from God's word. Turn, for death awaits us all. And if you die in rebellion to God, stubbornly resisting him and arrogantly insisting on self, Hades awaits But then there's another group, the doubting and disappointed Christian. And and it's interesting how Jesus reacts differently to these two groups of people. We just heard the, the, the harsh, loving warning from Jesus that if you don't repent, Hades awaits for you. But but look at how he responds to John the Baptist. A struggling, doubting, disappointed follower of Christ. He responds in verse 4. Jesus answered them, this group who had come to to Jesus to say, John's in prison and he's questioning your identity. John is having doubts and disappointments in your kingdom. And he tells them to go back to John and to proclaim the word of God, the truth of God. Jesus responds to John the Baptist by reiterating to him the gospel, the good news that he heard and knows. He says, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. He's saying, "Go, go and tell them what you see. And then he calls the crowds in verse 7 and he reminds them of John's identity. What did you see when you went out to the wilderness? Did you see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you see a weak man who didn't believe? Did you see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, you saw a prophet out in the wilderness who believed, who had zeal, who had fervor for the Lord. And so he's, he's reminding John and John's people of who John truly is the circumstances of his life in jail that are causing him to doubt and question aren't John's true identity. He's not a a doubter who is perpetually disappointed in Christ. He's in a life circumstance that causes him serious questions that he's wrestling with. And Jesus, to those who are his, he responds very differently. He doesn't condemn John. 
He doesn't warn John of impending doom. He reminds John of who he truly is. This is a prophet of mine. This is a son of mine. Look at verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Among those born of women is a Jewish idiom for just saying a human being, right? Born of a woman. He's, he's a man. Among all of those born, there has never been one greater than John the Baptist. John is sitting in prison, disappointed in Jesus, questioning Jesus, doubting Jesus. And Jesus says of John, there's never been one greater. And then he goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That's amazing. That's all of us. If you have submitted your life, if you have repented, if you have turned, even if you're doubting, even if you're disappointed, even if you're struggling, if you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior and you consider yourself one of the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are greater than John the Baptist. See, Jesus handles these two types of people very differently. To the hard-hearted, arrogant, unrepentant person, he warns, be careful for Hades awaits. To those who have repented but are struggling, he reminds of the good news of the gospel. Church, the reality is if you're in Christ, when you doubt, when you question, when you waver, when you struggle, when you're disappointed with the suffering that God allows in your life, or that he hasn't answered the prayer the way that you wish he had answered the prayer, he doesn't lose his temper and lash out at you with threats of condemnation. He warns the unrepentant about condemnation, but to those who are in Christ, he doesn't lash out with threats of condemnation for your lack of faith and your struggle. Instead, he simply loves you by sending Jesus as the decisive act of your redemption and takes your burdens upon himself in exchange for perfect rest. Two types of people, two different responses from Jesus but there's one invitation to all. To both groups of people, whether you're here this morning as an unrepentant person, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you're, you're not sure you can trust him, you, you don't know all of the, what you feel like you need to know about him, or you have been following him, but you've been disappointed with him. He gives us both the same invitation. Repent and run to him with childlike faith. That's what Jesus, your king, invites you to. Look at the end of the chapter with me, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, this is after all of the, it kind of explaining the, the profile of John the Baptist and the crowds in the cities. One needs encouragement and reminder. One needs warning and a call to repent. But then he invites all of us to turn. Repentance means turning to God. It's an invitation to turn from our own ways and turn to his ways and run to Jesus with childlike faith. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. See, when we're in circumstances of life that cause us to doubt and to question and to be disappointed, we can't think our way out of it. We need to trust our way into Christ. Jesus rewards childlike faith more than the philosopher, more than the studied theologian, more than the scholar, more than the wise, who the world would consider wise. Jesus says, God, I think that you've hidden these things from, from the smart, 
the wise, the intelligent of the world, and revealed to them to the little children. Verse 6, 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then hear the invitation to run to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're in a life situation right now that has caused you to doubt, that has created disappointment in your life. And if you're honest with yourself, you feel disappointed with God. Jesus invites you to come. Bring your doubt. Bring your disappointment. Bring your heavy burden, your labor. Place it on me, and I will exchange it for rest. Perfect, eternal rest, yes, but also peace here in this life. The the trying circumstances of your life, you can actually find peace in the perfect rest of Jesus as you obey his invitation to repent. Turn from your own ways, turn from your own thinking, turn from your own intellect, and run to him with childlike faith, saying, God, I don't understand it all, but I trust you. I want to trust you. Would you help me trust you? And here's my burden, here's my doubt, here's my disappointment, here's my frustration, here's my unmet expectations. I give it to you trusting that you will in exchange give me your rest. And that's what we do this morning as we take communion. We run to the communion stations. Not physically, just walk. (laughs) Be kind and gentle in this crowded room with people around you. But spiritually, run to the table hungry and thirsty for the living God for the invitation of Jesus, for the one who says, come to me with all of your baggage, come to me with all of your struggle, come to me with all of your doubt, come to me with all of your disappointment. Lay it down at the foot of the cross and in exchange, take up me. I bore your sin, your shame, your guilt, your disappointment on the cross and I've given you my yoke which is easy and my burden which is light. So come and eat and drink and receive the rest that God has given you. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your patience with us, that when we are disappointed, when we doubt, when we struggle, if we're in you, you don't lash out and punish us. You invite us to be reminded of the glorious truth of the gospel that Jesus really is sufficient. So I pray this morning that as we take communion that we would be reminded that in you is perfect rest. I pray that we would all lay our burdens down, that we would actually take you up on these verses, that we would come to you exchanging our burden, our labor for your rest. We thank you for taking it on yourself. That's an amazing reality this morning that whatever you are dealing with here and now this morning, you can actually just place that on Jesus. That's his invitation. Take all of the things that you are heavy-hearted about and depressed about and disappointed about and angry about and frustrated about and throw it on Jesus. It seems abusive, doesn't it? Like, I'm in the mess that I, that I made for my own sin. And Jesus says, yeah, you are, but you can't get out of it, so place it on me. 
So Lord, I pray that we would do that this morning. For anyone struggling to believe, anyone who hasn't repented, I pray that they would hear the loving warning about Hades which awaits those who live disappointed and unrepentant in you. And I pray that they would repent. Meet us where we're at, Lord Jesus. Lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence for this fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Amen.